simple shit used to be enough Just fingers interlocked, not static on the hush Now we barely even talk Hypnotic midday movie Spirals pelling where my pupils should be It occurred to me that people is equations We seek a figure we can test until we break it I write a letter out and throw it away Wonder how you are, you don't text for days Before I knew you good, I used to hunger for your name Asking mutuals or I could see you again Let's take it back then before history happened Rewind world by access till time to hunt track Hypnotic midday movie We both been here before, don't you see? I know it's stupid, but I'm caught up Still hugging on the future that I called us But you can smell it in the rain Storm bloom, something gotta change Itching in my scars every time you say my name Storm bloom, storm bloom You can smell it in the rain Storm bloom, something gotta change Itching in my scars every time you say my name Storm bloom, storm bloom for the love of another My eyes peeled on the mistakes of my mother Married three times, divorced three times Some people raised you think that love means mine I don't wanna own you, wanna make you laugh Don't teach my tongue memory, your body maps love All that learning was over too soon We ain't shed a bed since like last June Blame myself, but I blame you too Hurt so raw when there's nothing you can do Midday rerun, predictable plot Blood flow, blood settle, blood clack, clack, clack Maybe these are just dumb 1am thoughts Good sleep is one thing that lost can't cost Is this denial or patience? My hand on the door, but I'm hesitating You can smell it in the rain Storm bloom, something gotta change Itching in my scars every time you say my name Storm bloom, storm bloom You can smell it in the rain Storm bloom, something gotta change Itching in my scars every time you say my name Storm bloom, storm bloom You're listening to Ink Studs, and my guest this week is Grant Gronwald, a.k.a. HTML Flowers. Uh, (laughs) Sorry, did I ruin your intro? No, no, there's nothing to be perfected in Ink Studs. Um, Grant's going to be coming over to this side of the Pacific Ocean in a couple weeks. He'll be doing an event in Seattle at the lovely Fantagraphics bookstore uh, with his good friend Simon Hanselman. Uh, on April 23rd, as well as events at TCAF and Lineworks and some kind of mysterious event in New York that may or may not be public or private. Uh, yeah, it's not really anyone's business, so back off. There we go. Of course, by the time this gets posted, it'll probably be public. So <laughs> people can make the decision of uh, how they want to treat that event and uh, how they engage with it and have fun. Um, now your most recent work is, uh, No Visitors, uh, mini comic that you did last year, the issue one, and then the issue two is going to be out for the trip. Yeah. As well as other books include, um, your big book from, uh, Space Face, uh, Virtual Candle. Yeah. As well as your collaborations with your man, Simon. Werewolf Jones and Sons issue two. Issue two. Issue yeah. two's coming out. Yeah, that's that's part of the tour. Is me and Simon are having a second issue of Werewolf Jones and Sons. Oh, nice! I'm looking forward to it. As well as Bright Threads, and last but not least, the um, classic uh, Gilmore Boys selfie book, which is probably my least favorite and most favorite 
uh, <laughs> book that you guys have uh, you've done. Yes, yeah, some some people really didn't get the selfie book thing. But you know who did? <laughs> Charles Burns got it. So I don't give a shit what anyone thinks. Charles Burns loved it. He told me himself. Uh, and we put him in the book without telling him, and he was really good about it. <laughs> I don't even notice. Oh, he's like right on the cover there, just this little head. <laughs> he's on the fucking cover twice. <laughs> he's on the front. We kept we we screen capped his face to make it look like he was a part of the Gilmore Boys, with also with a picture of a cat, our old cat. Aww. And then on the back, he's standing next to Simon in a wedding dress. <laughs> he's a very nice man. I love Charles to death, and I think of all the people I've met in my travels of meeting like amazing comics people, Charles is one of my favorite. He's so he's so warm, and he's you know he's just a great guy to go to a bar with after a, after doing a, a little festival and just like sitting around drawing on napkins and talking about weird stuff. I remember uh, I got to do something like that with him in New York. And it was the best conversation. And then someone at the table said, this would make a great ink studs. And I just kind of turned to Charles. It would. It really <laughs> would. <laughs> yeah, man. He's reaching for that dream, you know? Um, now, we should also mention you also do music. And uh, I do want to talk a bunch about the music as well as not just the comics and the art stuff. Um, now, I was trying to think about like how to approach, talk about the comics and talk about your art, and where do I start from? Um, and I guess we can kind of do the old standard, like, what was kind of your interest in doing comics, and kind of get you doing that as as your art and drawing? Like, what was the instigators for that? Sure, I mean, like, I think a lot of it was just meeting Simon and seeing his obsession with comics, and he really... I mean, he convinced me, you know what I mean? Like he, I was making art and writing separately. And then I went to live with him in Tasmania for a while, sort of accidentally. I just went to tour there and then just decided to stay. And was just like, you're great. This is a great lifestyle. So we were just getting really drunk every day and making new, new things every day. We just, I'd never met anyone in my life who wanted to work as much as I did. And Simon is someone who works as much as me. We both, that's why we're such good friends. It's part of why is because we both just want to work constantly. So that really, yeah, it was a really beautiful thing to find. And he had an incredible collection of work. Um, and yeah, he, he just kept trying to convince me to put both together and say, you're already a good writer. You know, you're, you're, you're a great lyricist and you have all these weird stories of being ill in your life. You know, and, and he would just try to convince me to make comics. And then I, I did start trying. Um, it just took a long time before I got to the point where I was comfortable with it. And then I just started making really shithouse comics for ages. <laughs> Only recently they've gotten good. And I'm still getting better, I think. But, um, I mean, everybody is who makes stuff. I really, I really lay it with Simon. Like, I loved comics as a kid. And I tried as a kid, but I'd given up. Um, and if it weren't for meeting Simon, I don't know if I would have returned to the forum. Now, what kind of stuff was it that he was showing you that kind of synced in with you? Um, well, I'd never read any Dan Clouds before. Dan yeah. Clouds and Chris Ware were massive for me um, in terms of like writing cues, like where I'm, where I take a lot of my writing cues from. They'd be up there. Yeah. Um, you know, like the same for a lot of comics. Um, stylistically, the stuff I gravitated towards the most was probably the Fort Thunder stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I loved. 
I love the fact that it was less formal, which I think is something that sort of stopped me from being involved with comics for a long time was the the rigidness of it and how formal it seemed, you know? Yeah. Um, but Fort Thunder were inspiring in the sense that they weren't formal at all. Um, it seemed like the kind of thing like a poor, a poor uh, uneducated person could make, which is I was both of those things. It was a high school dropout with absolutely no prospects in life. So, you know, I felt really close to that work for that reason. And before, before all that, before I'd met Simon, I was really into Marcel Zama and Henry Darger. So they were all stylistic inputs for me. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I liked Jeffrey Brown quite a bit back then as well. Um, I enjoyed Seth's work. Were you posting stuff online at that point? Um, no. Not really. I mean, I was on MySpace, so I had a yeah. few things on MySpace, but not really. Just music mostly. I'd, I'd stopped doing art for a long time um, because my stepdad was quite abusive about it. So I just I ended up giving it up for years. So I'd, I wasn't really doing visual art unless it was related to music. So like the the music's okay, but visual art wasn't? Not at the time, no. Uh, like he, music has always been more therapeutic for me than comics. I find comics to be a dedication in the sense where I have to be committed to it and it's like a it's it's like a thing I have to work on you know with music it is soothing as I make it so I feel satisfied while I make it whereas comics don't feel satisfying until I'm sort of done you know mm-hmm. once the piece is finished then I feel a sense of satisfaction and a sense of having told told the world who I am or whatever but with music as I'm doing it it just feels good you know like like little Wayne says when the music hits you feel no pain it's interesting like there's such different approaches where with the music, it seems, at least the stuff I'd listen to, I'd listen to a bunch of stuff on your SoundCloud, and mm. it seems very clean and uh, clean in the sense of like polished and there's a really great production behind it. Or with mm. the comics, you, you allow yourself to be rougher and just dirtier and more immediate. Well, it's interesting that you say that because... Um the majority of my peers would think my work is really messy musically. Like, just think that the mixing... Because none of the mixing is professional. I do, I do most of it at home. Uh, I'm pretty happy with the first take of vocals I put down. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting you say that, but I guess it all depends on what background you come from musically. Like, it's definitely, you know, cleaner than, like, your average, like, I don't know, crass record or whatever. Like, just in terms of it being kind of, like, more sequenced um to my peers it's very very messy stuff and it's not it's not at all the kind of thing that snatches you a deal you know what i mean (laughs) no but i mean like when i was like it reminded me a lot of stuff i used to listen to in the early aughts uh i I know that sounds douchey probably but it like i kind of hear where you're coming from with that stuff and i guess like for me because i've been around when I before I was doing exercise, I was around a lot of electronic music, and yeah, this like when you hear shitty electronic music, it is shitty. Like it's there's 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 no saving grace to it, and so no, listen, it's not raw. That's the thing. Like you, you're using automation, and if you've done it badly, it just it comes off as like bad carnival music, basically. Yeah, which is okay sometimes too. So going back to the to the comics, um, yeah. what kind of stuff were you writing about when you were first uh, doing the comics? 
Um, veiled sort of metaphors for my, I mean, a lot of it's like when I look back, I can see that I was talking about illness, but the metaphors are really veiled because I wasn't, um, I wasn't like a strong enough artist to be honest yet. Um, and yeah, so I mean, I was talking a lot about, you know, you go on like a journey in the forest and there's an ooze that you eat and it makes you do this or that. Like it was very mystical bullshit. Cause I just like, didn't really know how to describe my life yet. Like I hadn't, I didn't have the skills. Um, and yeah, a lot, a lot of it was just kind of like my version of like a perverted reality that lived in my head, like a, a fantasy reality that I developed. Um, and almost none of it was consistently narrative. I had no regular characters. It was all fly, fly by the seat of my pants stuff, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was just really derivative of, like, Ron Reggie, um, Fort Thunder, uh, Henry Darger. You know, all of it was just, like, yeah, just a massive mess that sort of made sense if you paid a lot of attention, but really the payoff wasn't good enough. So, yeah. I don't know. Someone was posting about having one of my old ones from that era on Facebook last night, and I was just remembering it and just being like, God, why would anyone keep that? It's such a piece <laughs> of shit. Nothing going on in it. It's It's a boring you know, it's a boring waste of time. I don't make any effort to try to like help, help the reader understand what's going on. It's just a piece of shit basically. So yeah, there it is. What, like when you say Rigi and Henry Darger, uh, it makes me think of like this weird childlikeness to it. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm not trained as like I, like I said, I'm a high school dropout. Yeah, um, I didn't. I got kicked out of my art class for being too much, like for just being too rowdy. So I never, I never developed any of the the formal skills that you need to do, um, like really clean comics, I guess, or whatever. So I guess the roughness of uh, Darger's work appealed to me um, because it was such a mess, and like that was about the only way I could draw. You know, I could only be a mess, really. Yeah. Um, but you can't, so after meeting Simon and starting your comics, you keep doing that, doing them for a while to get to the point where you're like, there was something where you're like, this is what I want to be doing. Like, this is the style. These are the types of stories. You know, I probably didn't start really trying with comics until about 2013. Um, just cause Simon moved away to London not long after he moved, he moved to Melbourne to live in my mom's shed in 2007 or eight, I think. Um, and then he moved to London not long after that, um, for four years. And in that time, uh, it was during, it was near one of my life expectancies. So I thought I was going to die. So I I ended up just taking a shitload of drugs constantly. I got into drug dealing and I was doing a lot more music. And so I, I, I never, never tried to write stories down or anything. I would just sort of do, you know, just illustration zines basically. And uh, occasionally there'd be a bit of a comic format. But it wasn't until 2013, I think, when um, when me and Simon had been spending more time together uh, that I started working on a, these characters called the Twins, these little scratchy dog characters that were like representative of me and whoever. Mm-hmm. And, that, uh, is that the kind of green paper stuff in Virtual Candle? Yeah, and it's like, um, it's, it's green, pink, and yellow, the different color stocks for the different episodes of the Twins. Yeah, yeah I think that was probably my first effort at having consistent characters. I'd say around then, around 2013, 2012 is when I started focusing more on comics when Simon came back to Australia. Now, for folks that 
don't know much about you. It's cystic fibrosis that you live with? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, how old were you when you first got diagnosed with that? Six months old, so I've never oh, really wow. lived life without it. And I'm presuming it's kind of been ever present in how you navigate things and yeah well you know i go to hospital a few times a year i i like i have to do hours of treatments every day um and i wake up coughing and i go to bed coughing um my yeah my appearance is different because of it it, it affects everything in my body and i pay a lot of money to you know fucking medication and stuff so let's just say i notice i notice <laughs> <it>. <laughs> <laughs> it's there. Yeah. Uh, how old were you when you learned about the mortality behind it? Um, I was somewhere between five and eight. Okay. Um, because my first mortality, my first mortality was uh, sorry, you you made me say mortality. I I refer to it as a life expectancy because that's how the doctors talking about it. My first life okay. expectancy, which is a weird term, right? Because it's not like I'm going to start living at that point. It's like the end of my life will be at that point. <laughs> so it should be a mortality expectancy, probably. But my life expectancy, the first one was a year old. The second one was ten. And so I remember hearing my mother talk about it, and I remember understanding um, what was happening in my body. Especially because because we lived in America, my mother had to like sell her house, sell her car. She could only work jobs cash in hand because if she had any money, the government would take it because she'd had to declare bankruptcy just to cover the first six months of my my um, hospitalization. Jesus. Um, they told her I was going to die, so I had to spend six months in St. Louis Hospital, and it cost uh, I think like five hundred thousand dollars. Um, and which, you know, from, from a family, you know, my family's dirt poor, um, majority of the men have spent some time in prison. Uh, you know, we come from a town where all there is is meth labs and churches, basically. It's, you know, real low class background. And that, that, that kind of just screwed us up. And, uh, my mother had to do anything she could to try to keep me alive. She used to have to drive interstate just to try to find a hospital that would take us because we didn't have coverage. You know, she would have to find a charitable nurse or a ward that someone had checked out in, but they they hadn't technically been taken off the books, so we could get in their bed and have treatment, and it would still it would still be registered under them. So we'd have to do weird shit like that just to get me treated for my illness. So yeah, um, I was aware of what was happening. I knew why my family was poor. I knew why I was sick all the time. I knew why, you know, we were sleeping in a spare room in my grandma's house, um, me and my brother and my mother on a set of bunk beds for five years, and I knew why that was, like, I understood that. Yeah. Uh, so at a very young age, I understood I was going to die young, and that my family was struggling because of my, my illness. Um, and yeah, second life expectancy, 10 years old, third life expectancy, 20 to 22, uh, current life expectancy, 35. And you're 30 now? I'm 28. 28. Um, a very sexy 28. <laughs> <laughs> if if anyone has picked up the Gilmore Boys selfie book, you can find out exactly what uh, Grant's butt looks like. If you're hot dong with mustard. There we go. Um, now, I'm always weird when it comes around personal medical stuff and discussing that. Uh, but it seems for you like it's so key to your work and just reverberates through everything. Yeah, gotta talk about it. I'm sick of this shit, you know, not talking about it. 
like for one, it just means that everyone who doesn't talk about it is going to be severely underprepared for the conversation they're eventually going to face at one point in their lives about their own mortality. And for two, it just fucks my shit up, man. Like, how am I supposed to get by if I can't talk about this stuff? If it's like, you know, if I bring it up at a dinner party, it's like, a, you know, a terrible mood for everybody. That shit kills me. It's so stupid. You know, the amount of shame that brings a child who just has no idea why he's sick and doesn't doesn't understand that the world is essentially, uh, you know, it doesn't have a self. It has no interest in you. The universe is just a horrible, random, meaningless sequence of events that, that they, you know, you're trapped in this life. And as a kid, you don't understand that. And you think you're responsible for these things. And you're not even allowed to talk about it because it's so depressing. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm done with that shame shit. And I have been for a long time. And I, I don't think I've ever really hidden it. Um, mm -hmm. And just, I, I just don't think that's how poor people do it. Like, I grew up so poor. Everybody talked about their problems. That's what you talk about when you're poor because you got a lot of problems. It's how you get by. You share, you share your problems with each other and try to help each other. So I, I don't do the whole not talking about it thing. You're an open book. Yeah, I guess. Or I make open books. <laughs> um, so is that kind of the precipitous for moving to Australia? Um, yeah, my mom sort of like she she knew we had to get out. Um, she had I think she was using the, the local library's computer to talk on a, a forum about Hunter S. Thompson. Um, and she she made her way into this guy's heart and brought us over here to live with him. And things didn't go well. He turned out to be a bit of a drunk and a, a serious asshole. Mm -hmm. uh, but bottom line is we were in this country, and after 13 years, we were allowed to be citizens. So, And the health care was free, you know, and the medication was subsidized. So that's why we came here. That's why I lived here. How old were you when you moved to Australia? Ten. It was 1998. Oh, wow. How was the adjustment for you beyond just the health stuff, but just like moving somewhere so different? Culturally. Yeah. I, I hated it. You know, everything that was about, everything that Australian culture was about to me represented like the, the loss of my family and the loss of my home and ultimately like my own, my, my guilt for making my family lose, lose its, lose its place. You know, my mom didn't see her sister for 17 years and, you know, um, I mean, that kind of shit really gives a kid a complex, you know, yeah. so I felt really guilty. And the more I, you know, the more I became ingrained in Australian culture and spent more time with it, the more I, I just sort of hated it and didn't know why. I just subconsciously resented it because it represented like all my illness had cost. Um, but as as the years have gone on, I've, I've, I've come to love Australia a lot. You know, that that was just when I was a kid, when I was a tiny baby. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I love Australia now, and I think it's a, a beautiful country uh, that has a lot of fucking problems that it doesn't address, but I think you can have a good lifestyle here if you play your cards right. Now, for yourself, uh, health-wise, did you notice, like, being in this new health system, just the changes on how you were feeling? Like, was there a physical improvement? Oh, it was so good. I can't even explain it. Just being in, in, in a ward where people weren't sleeping in the hallways and where, um, yeah, where, where my mom, yeah, they, you know, they had beds for parents as well. And my mom used to sometimes sleep on the floor, um, just to stay in the room with me. Uh, you know, just my, my, my mom broke down and cried at the pharmacy the first time we ever had subsidized medication. She didn't understand. She thought they were going to 
charge her the full amount later, and she was trying to get it out of them. She be, she started yelling like, you know, no, don't try to fuck me on this. God damn yeah. it. I'll pay it now. I have the money now. If you try to take it me from later, I won't have it. And they're like, ma'am, you do not have to pay that. The government pays for it. And she's like, yeah, 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 I get it. A bill in the mail. I, I get what you're doing. I'm trying to tell you, you can't do that to me. I'm a single mother, you know? And I'm like, this is really having to go. And, uh, you know, she eventually realized and trusted it. She had to call my stepdad and be like, is this real? Is this right? Because um, she didn't know the extent to which um, illness was covered here. And then she just started crying. She was so thankful, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then she ended up using the extra money she thought she had to spend on one prescription to buy a shitload more of my prescriptions. And it was just like going home with a bunch of, you know, gold chains or something. It just felt like kings, just fucking kings. I've got all my meds and it didn't cost us more than $100. Fuck, this is amazing, you know? Yeah. Um. So, yeah, it was... Yeah, it was just, it was remarkable, the change. And, you know, they, they had Nintendos on the ward. They had these portable Nintendo machines that you could push around <laughs> that, like, uh, Nintendo had donated, obviously, to uh, foster brand loyalty in small, ill children. <laughs> they had these <laughs> Nintendo machines. And I, w- I would just play Yoshi Island all day in between having, like, horrific surgery and having to do awful physio and dr- drink weird powders and stuff like that. I would just play Yoshi Island and... uh fuck around with other kids on the ward as well, just play pranks, call people's bedside tables and just make fart noises into the phone. (laughs) It was just amazing. Yeah, American Hospital was horrifying, you know, just injured people everywhere, constant arguments about coverage, weeping family members constantly, you know, no niceties at all. Uh, You know, like duty to patient was low because shit just had to get done. So a nurse would just come in and start prepping you for like a a drip you had to have. Wouldn't explain that much and just be like, we have to do it now. I'm I'm in a rush, you know. And Australia was really different. There was a really big uh, difference in duty of care to patients. And yeah, so I owe a lot to the Australian healthcare system. Was that when you were in the McDonald house? Ronald McDonald House came when I was about uh, 11 to 13, uh, and that was Australia, yeah. yeah. But the, like, the, the general wards here are much better, and that, that's what I was talking about. But Ronald McDonald House was a whole other thing that I didn't understand. I didn't know why I got to go to this cool place just because I was sick, you know, because where I came from, you don't get to do that. Um, but yeah, as I've grown older, I've begun to feel a bit weird about my time at the Ronald McDonald House. It's being an unknowing mascot for Ronald McDonald, a small, sick mascot for Ronald McDonald and his gang. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's the reason I'm bringing it up is because it's more pronounced in the work you're doing right now. Yeah, and kind I'm of filtering through. Us. What is it about about that situation that's speaking to you right now? Um, I guess I'm just thinking about it. You know, to me, uh. The way the way society works is like important. I'm interested in those things, but I'm not like a smart guy. Like I didn't go to university or anything, so like I don't get to do the whole academic critique and feel smart. But you know, so for a long time, I've been sort of searching for a way I can talk about um, social neglect, social exploit, you know, social abuse on on like lower classes. And but I also did I didn't want to just rant about it. I don't like reading long rants about the shit. You know, I want to feel connected while I'm doing that. So you need to have a character. You need to have a storyline. You need to have a narrative that draws you to it, you know. So I I sort of realized at one point after a few years where I talked more and more about my time at the Ramon McDonald House with friends who were actually becoming social workers themselves and talking about the corporate involvement 
I started looking back on some of my childhood experiences of being sponsored by Nintendo or sponsored by McDonald's or KFC brings lunch in, you know, um, I started thinking about all that and realizing that, um, you know, maybe that, that had helped to form some of my, my feeling of, of being exploited by like a capitalist culture. And that one of the smartest ways I could to talk, do to talk about that was to talk about, you know, spending time in a Ronald McDonald house when you're a kid and what that kind of means, what you're helping at that point, you know, what you're enabling within the society you live in without realizing it. Because you're a kid and you just think it's awesome that you get to play PlayStation for free and that you get to hang out and sit on bean bags and that they bring you like slices of apples while, when you're hungry and you're watching a Disney movie, you know, like yeah. you don't realize that you're kind of saying yes to this system where we need charities, you know, which we shouldn't be the case. We shouldn't have to have charities stepping in and we shouldn't give these, these uh, abusive, massive corporations the opportunity to justify themselves in the public eye by, by just like, you know, <laughs> strapping a free t-shirt on a sick kid and saying, this little guy got to sleep in a cool bed for a week and play some PlayStation. We're a great company. Support us at every turn. Like, that shouldn't be the case. You know, yeah. people who are disenfranchised should not be disenfranchised, and we shouldn't have to rely on fucking McDonald's to help sick kids out. That should not be the case. So that was the point, I guess. I, I came to a point where I realized how fucked up it was. It is. I mean, it's... it's um, like in situ Like, I've worked in the healthcare system quite a long time. And uh, there's like poverty porn. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like the Sally Struthers. Look at these kids in Africa. Yeah, yeah. Shit. Yeah, I'm perfect. I'm a, I'm a, I'm an inspirational porn star. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the this the new No Visitors number two. It starts with a cutting from a pamphlet. Uh, which is the Starlight Children's Foundation Australia. They're just a charity foundation that works in my hospital. And it's got this kid uh, with, uh, he's playing Nintendo next to this uh, smiling social worker. And it says, giving sick ch children a reason to smile. So I'm really, I'm on the warpath, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's that, that statement says so much. These poor little fucks, you know, let's give them a reason to smile. Because I mean, they don't have any reasons, and life as someone who's ill is fucking pointless. So let's give them a Nintendo and make some money. Well, there's so much. It's so interesting because, like, at one part, you're, you're there's this gratefulness. But another part, I can see in your work, you're just, like, so fed up with the health system in a lot of ways. Oh, totally, yeah. But it's, it's brutal. You know, there's, there's, it's hard because I know there's no good way to do a lot of this stuff within the framework of our society. Like, I know doctors have their hands tied as much as me a lot of the time. Um, but I just need to fucking say this shit, you know, or I'm going to die too young, if you feel me. Yeah. Did you find that this, like, is there a point in your work where this is getting more pronounced? Um, the illness? Well, just being so... Um, upfront about it in your work like especially with no visitors like that's such a you know blunt statement in a lot of ways in comparison yeah. to the stuff you'd see in virtual candle um yeah think... 20, 2014 i think i started i started writing for no visitors in 2014 roughly and i would do a lot i would try a lot of different things but it never came to fruition um and late 2015 is when it all started to come together Okay. 
I'd collected enough notes. I'd tried enough iterations. And, uh, I mean, you've seen some of the earlier ones. I sent you, like, the um, the France one with the therapy fuck session. And uh, that that was, like, one of the very first comics I ever drew with the character Little. Um, okay. And you can see his hair has changed. His hair is yep. very different now. You know, the character design has changed. Um, he looks more like a fantasy version of me because I've always wanted to have a cool mullet. So he's got a cool mullet. Um, and... Yeah, so around about late 2015 is when it all came together. But I'd been collecting stories for a while. And um, I think over the last few years, I've just tried to get more blunt with all of my stuff in general because I realize simple art is, like, just the best. Like, all the stuff I love is simple. All, yeah. all the stuff that my friends love is simple. And, you know, when I think about me as a person, like, uh, I'm a simple person or whatever. So it made a lot of sense to me to just start writing directly and just saying, like, just write a comic where you literally describe the process of surgery. You know, don't beat around the bush with these veiled metaphors that you've been fucking with for years. Just just cut to the core. Your daily life as a sick person is interesting enough. So I think that was the idea that I had. Was there any works that you've seen that kind of speak to something similar to this? Um, In the comics world? Yeah, or even literary, musical visual dance performative no not really i mean there's a few things that like you know uh my is it my big fat teenage diary i really liked that i felt like it gave a good example of living with like mental illness and trying to trying to deal with with some stuff i really connected to that um uh i mean other than that like you know i like susan sontag did a book on illness uh, because she she had ended I think she'd been diagnosed with cancer at the time. It's called uh, Illness as a Metaphor: AIDS and AIDS and Its Metaphors by Susan Sontag. That one really resonated with me. Um, there was a book by um, Joan Didion called The Year of Magical Thinking, where her husband died and her 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 daughter almost died, and that really helped me understand the way that my life has been like controlled by a, a form of grief but like it's a weird grief because it's like a grief for myself and a grief for my family and none of us are dead you know it's yeah. just i grieve for the life that was taken from us because of my illness and shit if that doesn't sound too wanky um but like yeah i mean that was a whole nother reason why i wanted to do this and go hard and just be straightforward with a lot of this writing is because i just i haven't seen that i didn't have that when i was growing up um, and I don't, I don't really have that now. I don't see a lot of comics that do this. And I, w I would like to. I would like to see, you know, I want to see the, I want to see disabled people run the world. I want to see them bathe in the blood of insurance providers. And <laughs> I, I want to see them given free houses and free gold chains. And um, yeah, I want healthy people to lick our feet clean at the end of every night. <laughs> um. Is there was there a point where um, there's a kind of I feel like there's been kind of a resolve somewhere where um, you're kind of like I can be living in the illness or living with the illness. Mm. Does that make sense? Sort of, but could you clarify? Sure. Like what I'm thinking of, like the the illness is a part of it. It's, it's your everyday thing. Um, and to 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 a pretty extreme extent, um, considering 
what most folks go through every day. Uh, but you don't let it stop you. Yeah. You know, like you're saying, like you're you're a workaholic. Like you said in twenty end of twenty fifteen, you're working nonstop on this stuff. And I know talking to Simon, he was just like working nonstop. Um, yeah. Like, and so I'm really interested in this, and like, because, and this is I'm totally meandering off in a million different directions right now, because I see this like incredible focus on your work, mm. but then I see like the Gilmore Boys and the enfant terrible, you know, whatever shitstorm you guys cause when you go in public. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, and I really don't know what I'm trying to say here. No, I feel you, I think. Like, I, I think I'm curious about, like, that That kind of, was there a switch somewhere where it's like, I, I just gotta be me and do what I can and what I want and fuck everything else and just focus on it. Uh-huh. No, I've always been that way, and Simon too, and that's why we love each other. The difference is I just got good at it. Like, so it wasn't like a switch. It was just that before, I just sucked. That's the difference. <laughs> <laughs> so like now I'm good at it. Now when I do it, it's you know why the Gilmore Boys pranks and the selfie zines and the weird internet presence we keep is funny is because you know our work is good. You wouldn't give a shit if we made bad work. No one would care if we had a if we called each other the Gilmore Boys and we got drunk at festivals and pissed people off, no one would give a shit or find that at all endearing if we didn't make good work. Is that okay? I don't think it's okay, but we do it, and it seems to work. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like that's what, No one would care if we weren't good at art. They, they yeah. wouldn't, shit, I wouldn't care about a group doing that if they weren't good at art. Um, I mean, there's a few examples of artists that I think are kind of just funny, and I don't like their art, and it's funny to see them being funny, but at the end of the day, I, n- I never think about them when I'm thinking about people that I, you know, refer to or that I, like, am inspired by or whatever. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it's just that I don't suck now at this. I'm kind of, you know, I'm getting better at this. So, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, like you said, me and Simon workaholics. Like, why, you know, I can't live my life uh, working as hard as I do without without including every aspect of myself. And one aspect is that... I like to prank things and people and me and Simon, we like to fuck with people and we like to be fucked with. And, you know, we grew up in really volatile environments. So the idea of taking things in small measures doesn't really, it makes no instinctual sense to us. Our instinct is to go way too far with everything we do. And that is like just a natural impulse we have. So, you know, if, if we have the idea to put out a selfie book along with our you know our more considered comic work where you can see our dicks and we've just screen capped weird pictures of paris hilton online and uh george michael and and whatnot and you know pokemon screens then uh you know then we're gonna do that because that's how that's how we live in the community i come from you don't you don't have shit but you are proud of everything you do and you're proud of who you are and, you know, that that's where Simon comes from, too. He's also one of the only other people I know who has a comparable story of growing up low class to me. Like his his home life was fucked up and so was mine. And that's why you see us wasted at the karaoke bar. And that's why you see us getting kicked off panels at fancy events. <laughs> like I, that, I, that's, I heard yeah. about the one in Australia where you guys fell over making out or something. Yeah, we just got way too drunk before this panel. I honestly didn't mean to take it that far. Um, but they, you know, we'd had all this vodka and Red Bull 
and we they'd been giving us free beers at the hotel. And when you walked into the hotel, they gave you free moe. Like they handed you a glass and said, "Would you like a drink, sir?" And they pour you a fucking glass of moe. So it's just a really fancy festival. And I guess they thought that, in a sense, like Simon's work is a creation of fiction. And it is to a degree, but it's very much rooted in his actual life and his yeah. actual behavior and the behavior of his peers. And so, you know, they weren't ready for how much Simon and I are actually his characters and how much of Mega Hex and Megan Mog and, you know, worse behavior in Amsterdam, how much of that is actually based in things that we've really done or really seen in our lives. I don't think they were ready for uh, the trash bagginess that we were bringing to the party. And so they put us on a panel with... Um, I can't remember his name now. It slips out of my mind because I'm on the spot. Um, it doesn't matter. It's Australia. Yeah, exactly. Uh, some big names um, in Australia. Fairly, fairly big name comedians were medi- mediating us, like they moderating our panel. They, they'd had their own show on a massive network for years, and uh, me and Simon just ended up way too drunk because they gave us a bottle of wine when we arrived at the venue to do the talk. So. At this point, I was at this certain level of self-destructive drunk I get where I'm just not, it's not a good thing. And I apparently I sculled a glass of wine and just threw it off this balcony back back over my head, just like, let's do this shit when the panel was on. And security at that point approached the, the, the people to throw me out, but they were like, no, he's on the panel, you can't, he, no, don't throw him out. So they wanted to throw me out before I even got on the panel. And then uh, we sat through the panel, and in our drunkenness, it was very boring to us. Um, and we, we kept whispering to each other, we're going to fuck this shit up, man. We're going to change the game. They have no idea. They're, we're going to blow this crowd away. None of this talking shit. Let's do some shit. And, uh, yeah, we got up on stage, and this was only supposed to be an interview for Simon. And Simon just brought me on stage with him. I sat on his lap, and we answered questions tandemly. We both answered them. And uh, the interviewers quickly just stopped asking us questions and kept laughing. And then we insulted them. We told them they were, uh, this whole interview was shit. And we said the crowd could go fuck themselves, and the interviewers could as well. And then we just made out until everybody left the stage. And we fell over while we were making out in the chairs. So that, that really, yeah. It was uh, <laughs> the, the event organizers were not pleased, but everyone else in the entire world seemed very happy about it. The internet was pleased 100. percent Other other people who'd been flown down for the festival kept approaching us and just going, "Dude, I heard about what you did last night. That's amazing. These things are so boring. Usually, you guys fucked it up. That's awesome." So, but you know, I do feel bad. I think the the organizers trust us, trusted us, and we we betrayed that a bit. So I feel bad for that. But ultimately, I think I would uh, I wouldn't count it as one of my big regrets in life. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. Let's talk about music. Yeah. You've been doing. You said you've been doing music quite a while before comics, during comics. Yeah. Still performing. Yeah. Um, what's been, what was some of the stuff you're getting into? What right now? No, when you when you first started. Oh shit, man! Uh, <laughs> Radiohead, um, Lincoln Park, <laughs> Limp Limp Biscuit, uh, Blink One Eighty Two, Green Day. You're making me feel old. Uh, you know, Public Enemy, N.W.A., uh, Salt and Pepper. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of shit in there, man. Dead Kennedys were a massive influence on me. 
Uh, my mom showed me the Dead Kennedys. I loved, you know, I loved Lou Reed, Nico, um, John Cage. Uh, I was obsessed with Bjork. Um, yeah, Tracy Chapman was a massive influence on me as a kid. She was one of the first people I just ever loved as a pop star. I just loved her, and she was one of the first people I ever cried to cried to her music. I used to cry to Fast Car as a kid. Um, yeah, I, I mean, want, sorry, I want to dial back here. You said John Cage. Yeah. Um, that's that's kind of an odd one in comparison with everything else you're mentioning. And, My, and kind of, nah. Uh, well, I mean, it's super conceptual um, compared with everyone, but maybe like Lou and Nico. Um, I think I meant John Cale. Okay. <laughs> but I, I also liked John Cage, though, because my mom liked John Cage. Okay. Um, and I liked Brian Eno. I loved the talking heads. You know, <clears throat> um, I, I, yeah, I was into a lot of that sort of um, more, more abstract stuff, especially as I became a pretentious teenager. So were you making kind of more, like what kind of stuff were you making early on? Was it I was making electronic or? Hardcore noise music and okay. pressing out of tune folk music where I would basically just talk about being sick. I used to have a chorus that was, uh, I've got nothing, I've got nothing, I've got nothing left to keep me here. And um, there's one about putting on a skeleton suit and laying in my own grave. Uh, there's one about how how sick I was, how you could see see my rib cage if I was standing very far away from you. Yeah, just just horrible shit about being sick and lonely as a kid. Um, and I was all played on an out of tune guitar. And in between that would be these in, intense sort of uh, intervals of hardcore noise music, just just brutal um, sound abuse. Just like Merz Bowie. Just yeah, Merz Bowie was an influence at the time. Um, yeah. Well, when did you start getting into more um, kind of that minimal electronic type sounding stuff that I was hearing? Probably in my 20s, like around 20 to 25 is when I really sort of solidified a lot of that. Um, I started going back because I listened to a lot of hip hop as a kid. Um, my mom loved um, Public Enemy, MC Light, salt and Pepper, Tupac, Biggie. You know, I listened to a lot of that growing up. And I returned to it as I got um, older. And, uh, yeah, just the production on a lot of that stuff is, is so beautifully simplistic. And, um, you know, it's, like, exactly the same as, like, the reasons that I loved The Velvet Underground were the same reasons that I loved Tupac because mm-hmm. it was simple music with a good story, you know. So that's that's what I'm after now. That's That's what I'm interested in. I like things that obey a pop structure to a degree, but include sounds that you wouldn't expect. Um, and I like to talk about shit in a simple way. Nice. Yeah. No, and like I said, I really enjoyed the stuff I had. It's like I should have been listening to this sooner. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and you're still doing performances and stuff? Yeah, yeah. I've got one coming up on the 25th, actually. Me and my friend Oscar have made an album together. Um, so we're going to be playing that uh, at this place in Australia, which I guess I won't bother mentioning on a Vancouver show. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it'll, during a, I'm going to the hospital on the 23rd, and the show's on the 25th. So I'll be doing a, I'll be getting ward leave to play the show, which is one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> Once I ruptured a drip doing it, I had this this big surgical implant in my arm. It was from you know the comic that I sent you where I get where little gets surgery. Yeah. 
Um, it was like twenty five times. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think twenty five is a modest estimate. I've had it more than that. I'm pretty sure. Um, but that's the pick uh, line. The pick line implant. Yeah, it it goes into my heart. It's like a a, a plastic catheter that delivers med- medicine to my body more thoroughly. Yeah. Um, and. It's because my my uh, veins, my peripheral veins down my arm are more damaged from years of overuse from being in hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I did this show where I was like, I got I gotten onto the ceiling girders somehow, and I was swinging from the girders. Um, and I yeah, I just did this uh, this show, and I missed I missed the last train home, so I had to like sleep on my friend Oscar's floor and catch the first train in the morning to get back to the hospital because they give your bed away if you're out overnight. Like, it's it's against policy to be able to stay away overnight. Yeah. And um, I got back, and the the nurse, uh, she was like, look, I haven't told anyone. We'll just pretend you slept here last night. Don't worry about it. Um, and we tried to use my drip, and it was just fucked. And so I was just like, you know what? Let's just write down that I'm refusing treatment. I think I'm just going to go home. I've been here for 12 days. That's enough. That's close enough to two weeks. So we took my drip out and I just went home. But yeah, I tissued it from climbing on the ceiling and just uh, swinging from the fucking girders when I should have been in hospital just getting a I- IV medication. So let's see if I do it again this time. Let's see if I rupture <laughs> my drip. So do you have to like, is it pretty frequent that you have to spend a fair amount of time in the hospital? It's getting more frequently older I get because cystic fibrosis is a degenerative illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, yeah, I mean, it's like usually at least twice a year. Now, the, my only knowledge of cystic fibrosis is the Bob Flanagan documentary. Yeah, sick. I've never watched it. Is it something you don't want to watch? No, it's just like everybody always tells me to watch it, so I don't want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, yeah. people always tell me about um, what's that cool guy, David Wojcinek, as well. I, I can't remember how to say his last name, but he was like an amazing queer um, disabled artist. And people always Warn- tell me to read his Warnick? stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's a difficult Polish name, I'm pretty sure. And people constantly tell me to read his stuff, so I never have because I just don't like it. You know, I just don't like that. Oh, check it out. He's sick, too. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's just, it's weird. So I, I haven't checked him out. <laughs> I read a bit of his diaries once and I related to a lot of it. His his relationship with pain was familiar to me, but I never really got into the BDSM like he seemed to. Yeah. I do like a bit of rough sex, but not, nothing like, I, I think he like nailed his balls to a table once and stuff. Yeah. That's a bit far for me. I'm not, I'm not that into pain. I do like pain, but not that much. It was very 1990s. Yeah, 90s. Yeah. You know, Jim Rose side circus era. Yeah. <laughs> so sorry, I think I sidelined us. What were you asking? You were asking I don't even I... I don't even know if it was it was important. Um Now you're coming to the States and Canada. Uh, and Werewolf Jones two is coming out. Werewolf Jones and Sons two. And Sons, yeah. Can't forget those wonderful children. Jackson Diesel, the little poopers. <laughs> Uh, and I, I saw you mentioning somewhere online about how uh, of of that stuff working with Simon. That's the stuff you can kind of best focus on, or like you connect with the best. Uh yeah, Werewolf Jones. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have this weird ability to write for Werewolf Jones. Like, um, I've I've done most of the premises for the series of Werewolf Jones, and the majority. The majority of the recent writing that I've contributed to the Megan Mog series has been 
anecdotes for Werewolf Jones or Owl. I can I, I can handle those two characters, but I never really get Meg or Mog right. Like occasionally I'll give Mog a line. I don't know. I think I once gave Meg a line. Like I once did something for Meg, but for some reason those characters I just never can get into their headspace. I think because they're both really Simon, you know. Yeah. Um, whereas like uh, Owl and Werewolf Jones, for some reason I can just think of a lot of stuff for them. So I. Uh, yeah, it was a few few years ago now that we we started talking about Werewolf Jones and just uh, as Simon mentioned, because I'd kept bringing up good ideas for Werewolf Jones. We'd keep having writing sessions and I'd keep just churning out these premises for Werewolf Jones that didn't really fit for Megan Mogg. And eventually Simon was like, let's just do a Werewolf Jones series. We've got enough. We've got more than enough. And it's true. We've got backed up scripts. We're like ready to go with, with you know, as much as we can do. Um and yeah, I don't know why. I just relate to him. And I a lot of it's just childhood stories from me and Simon's life as well. Like uh, we're, we're working on one at the moment, which is about, uh, and you might, you, you might have experienced this depending on what kind of school you went to, but in my school and Simon's school, there was a kid who apparently fucked a dog or like fingered a dog. <laughs> and it like both of our schools had that, both of them. So it's like this thing where we often will just start talking about our childhood and realize that we both have this shared fucked thing that happened in our like our childhood, and we just we end up putting it in Werewolf Jones, like um, the story with uh, Jackson and Diesel in the office. That's something my dad really did. He really went to this office meeting once, and um, he yeah his his response when <laughs> the principal said I had been playing with myself too much, and my dad's response was literally, "Well, it's his. Why can't he play with it? Is he touching somebody else's? What's the problem?" Like he was not at all phased by that. He was like, why can't my son touch his own dick in class? Why can't he do that? Um, and the t-shirt that uh, that Jackson's wearing, the one that says, sit on my face and leave a snail trail, baby, that's actually a shirt that Simon's dad used to wear. So oh, a lot of Jesus this stuff is Christ. just literally just like stuff from our childhoods because we, we had really shithouse dads and we, we grew up in really shitty areas. So yeah. we have more than enough stories about Werewolf Jones. We've got years of <laughs> shit to draw on. <laughs> And we still we still associate with known scumbags. There's no end to the Werewolf Jones series. <laughs> you must have a lot of stories just from your days. You're saying you're dealing drugs for a while. Yeah, just to get by because I couldn't I couldn't qualify for welfare because I wasn't a citizen. Um, so I didn't have enough money to really live out of home. And me and my stepdad had gotten to a point where there was like threats of physical violence, so I had to leave the house. Um, and I ended up meeting this dude and he was like, you know, you're really good at networking and talking to people. You're a really charismatic guy. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, why shouldn't you get paid for that? And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, look, I've got some stuff. Do you want to move it? You know? Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't anything major. I wasn't like in the cocaine game or anything like that. I was just moving pharmaceuticals and weed and occasionally some acid and maybe some like, um, speed every now and then very small amounts of heavy drugs. Yeah. And it, it fucking, it paid the rent and I put some savings away and that was how I got by. It was a real Walter White situation. Um, so yeah, that, that was, uh, there's a lot of stories from that time. That's going to come into, uh, come into no visitors little that's that's how little gets by as well for a long time because little is kind of analogous to me um but there's a lot of stuff in no visitors that are stories from other people i know who are sick who've, who've said i can use their stories you know so i was wondering about that of like within it like how much is you and how much is um 
just telling people's horror stories of getting by with illness and dealing it is with like, shit. So far, it's 90% me. Um, or 98, I think. There's been like maybe two stories that have drawn on experiences from other people. But majority of it is just like straight, straight up. Like that masturbation comic where he chooses on the sandwich. I think I showed you. Oh my you. god, that one's amazing. Thank you. I'm really glad you liked it. <laughs> the only, the only part of that that isn't real is uh, the mom knocking on the door and the jizz on the sandwich. I didn't actually get any jizz on my sandwich. Um, Did you get it on your phone? No, I didn't. Well, I might have. I don't know. I'm not really that clean as a person, so <laughs> I might have gotten it on the phone and not noticed. But. My uh, my mom never knocked, and she never tried to get into the bathroom and take me out for lunch, and there was never that urgent situation. But I, after I, you know, after I came, I was laying on the bathroom floor, just thinking, like, God, this is a weird life I live. I'm in a public ward; anyone could walk in because the doors don't properly lock. And I just got a boner because a nurse uh, jabbed a nasal probe so far up my goddamn face that I could feel it behind my eyes. And that, for some reason, made me horny. So I had to masturbate in the bathroom. And because I've been fasting all night, I had to eat a sandwich while I masturbated. You know, I just laid on the floor of the bathroom just thinking, like, what is this lifestyle that I live? This is so <laughs> strange. You know, and that, that was only two years ago. Like, you know, these kind of experiences, just they just keep on coming. So <laughs> most of it's me. Most of it's my life. And, um, you know, I just, I just want to talk about this stuff before I die. Yeah. Well, that's is, is that kind of give you kind of um, immediacy of having to like I see there's kind of like an immediacy and a catharsis together at once. Yeah, it feels good, man. It feels good to t- tell your story. You know, I feel like everybody should try it. Um, it gives me a reason to get up. Uh, I don't sleep much, you know. So as a person who doesn't sleep much, I need to be able to do something. Um, and if I didn't have this, I don't know. I just, I don't think I'd be alive at this point. I think, you know, my, my urge to kill myself has been pretty strong from a very young age. And if it weren't for, if it weren't for this shit, I definitely wouldn't, wouldn't climb out of bed in the morning and I wouldn't, wouldn't work like I do. I wouldn't give a shit about anything probably. You talk about that a little bit about the depression and Mm. and suicidalness Mm. books. It's come, there's a, there'll be more of it. You know, yeah. these, these are just the first stories. I've got a bunch. I've got a big narrative arc planned. It's got, th- that strikes me as even more difficult to talk because then you have to, like, navigate people's feelings. Yeah. Well, you mean, like, how people feel about talking about that stuff? Yeah. And then how they respond to you. Yeah. Because there's, I, like, there's the health stuff, but then the, there's that, and suddenly someone's going to be like, needing to put on velvet gloves how do you sorry can you repeat that like 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 someone reads this work or reads years about you know dealing with severe depression and suicidal thoughts and people don't know how to respond yeah yeah like is how do i respond how do how, how do i navigate being around you are you are you a depressed person yourself no. All right. Well, um, I'm sure you've heard of how depressed people kind of just put on, you know, we're, we're often funny or whatever, yeah. you know, because it softens the blow. I've worked in mental health for 10 years. All right. So you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You, you, you've met people who literally tried to kill themselves a day ago and they're cracking jokes in the ward hallway. 
Yeah. That's that's the vibe, you know. That's what the work yeah. is. The work is, you know, it's going to be funny at times, and it's also I want it to be crushing. I just want it to be the way I talk about it. I want it to literally represent the way I look at it and talk about it. So, um, and in terms of the way people look at me, you know, that's 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 the point. I'm sick of this thing of us being afraid to admit that we have all thought about killing ourselves at one point. We've all, at some point, even if it was just an abstract notion, even if you just thought, what is it like? You know, what yeah. would it be like? You know, what would my life be like if it was different? We've all thought that. And the majority of us have thought it to the degree of thinking that it would cure something or solve something. And so I'm, I'm yeah, I'm done with pretending that doesn't exist. I have been for a long time. Um, and yeah, if people have to put on kit gloves to deal with me after reading that stuff, which I can't imagine, um, just because all my friends are depressed scumbags too, so they get it. Yeah. Um, but like, if someone had to do that, then they're just missing the point altogether. The point is, this shit exists. You know, don't yeah. make me change my, don't make me change the way I talk. Don't make me change the way I live. I, I'm so done with people not being able to hear you talk about suicidal ideation. You know, I, um, I frequently reach out to people I don't know that well that I just sort of vaguely know on social media that are friends of friends or that I've met once or twice. If they're posting suicidal stuff, I really try to respond to them and send them a message and just say. Hey, if you just want to meet up and talk about how good it would feel to die, you know, and just saying like, I totally do, you know, I want to be here for you. I want to hear those thoughts that I know you can't say to your other friends. We're not that close, so it might work, you know. Yeah. I do that a lot, and I've had some good experiences literally just meeting up with someone who is, you know, at their wit's end and just being able to talk about it and just say, yeah, you know, I've thought about how I would do it. Uh, sometimes I wake up and, if, you know, without it even being words, it's not a thought process, I just know I should die that day or I should, you know, right away just kill myself, you know. Um, I, I don't want to hide that. I don't want to make people hide that. So, if pe yeah, people shouldn't treat me different. I'm the same. I, yeah. I was depressed when they were talking to me and they didn't know it and I'm depressed afterwards too, so. It, I feel like that also kind of creates a sense of creative uh, urgency as just as far as like being a coping mechanism to like keep your yeah. brain on track and not getting into you know, letting your head go into a certain direction. Yeah, I like, um, I like really needed to stabilize myself because I don't, I was never shown good coping mechanisms when I grew up as a kid. So this is the healthiest way I know how to handle this. And I, I do, I do legitimately start to just feel horrible if I haven't, you know, I think I can get two or three days without heavily working on something and then I start to just feel horrible so I don't, I don't really break that much. I don't take breaks between projects. I kind of just set the next one up after I finish one. Like I'm already doing roughs for the, the Werewolf Jones, um, and I just finished the latest issue of No Visitors last night. So, you know, I don't, I don't like to break. It's, it's a weird feeling to wake up and have nothing to do. It's depressing. Yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're working, like you're really pumping out new work, um, just the stuff you showed me, the, the, the no visitors, like, and I'm really interested in, in that coming out. Um, and then also with the werewolf Jones, cause they're so explicitly different too. So it's like you're changing trains. Yeah. Yeah. Break from one. Yeah. I've wondered, I'm, I'm somewhat worried that the transition will be different. Cause this is the first meaty bit of work I've done in no visitors where the first issue of no visitors was really like, uh, for, formative. If, if that's the right word to use, like I was really, like learning how I wanted to draw a little, how I wanted the writing to go. 
trouble, troubleshooting a lot. Like there's a lot of the writing um, that I I don't necessarily like. Uh, that I'm just yeah, just just less words, more exposition, less words. You know the classic show don't tell thing. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I issue one is non-canon in my mind, but I'll, I'll keep it out there. I know people like to collect things. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, issue two is the first meaty bit of work I've done on No Visitors where there's a consistency. You know, you're, you're looking at someone's lifestyle. Um, you're revisiting that character. You're getting to know them and see the things they go through. Um, so I am wondering if the transition to Werewolf Jones will be hard. But the other day, I just cranked out a bunch of scripts while I was on Skype with Simon, so I really doubt that it'll be hard. <laughs> I think Werewolf Jones lives in my heart. It's so easy for me to write for him. Like, I just immediately can think of things for him to do. and just, yeah. not, not that it's the hardest character to write for. You basically just have to think about the worst things you've ever seen happen and the biggest instances of parental neglect you've ever encountered. And hey, you got yourself a fucking Werewolf Jones script. So. <laughs> I just love just like he he's the person we all could be basically yeah if we like turn that part of our brain off I think that down the road there'll there'll be some revealing as to why werewolf Jones is the way he is as well but that's that's a conversation for for the future there we go we'll leave that for next time mm. well thank you so much Grant for joining me today I've really really enjoyed this conversation and gotten a lot out of it and I think listeners will as well uh, no remind, uh, reminder folks I've been talking to Grant uh, Gronwald and his latest book we've been talking about a bunch No Visitors 1 can you get that online still or is it out of print? I'm bringing it with me on tour so you can get it on tour there we go and hopefully maybe some of those stores that you stop in will have copies if yeah. they miss you um, and so No Visitors 1 and 2 as well as the new Werewolf Jones and Sons. Um, keep your eyes on the Gilmore Boys. Gilmore dot, Boys, 2016. <laughs> <laughs> um, as well as Virtual Candle. Uh, Out through too. Space Face. Word. Ain't no cure for the memory uh.